Episode 19 of Zap. I spent this past summer in Hot Springs, Montana, and was fortunate to make the acquaintance of a multifaceted gentleman named John Porterfield. He has his hands in many different undertakings in our state. For instance, he is part owner of Montana Grow, which creates a Montana sourced silicone based crop supplement called Ignimbride. Find out more at ignimbride.com. John has grown hemp in the past and contributed materials to different hemp-related projects, including the work of Francis DeForest and my own project, MAP, the Montana Attainability Project, to which he donated a hefty pile of hemp stalks and the use of his wood chipper so that I could get started experimenting with hempcrete. Currently, he is looking to develop the use of hemp fiber and wool in Montana at his textile manufacturing mill in Malta, Montana, where these miracle fibers are blended into pillows and duvets. Find out more information at www.woolenhemp.com. He is also part owner of Wild Horse Hot Springs, and among other things, we talk about John's ideas for harnessing their healing waters for heat and food growth. And now, please enjoy my interview with John Porterfield. I'll fill you in a little bit. Montana Grow was a uh, is really the brand that the product Ignimbrite has been a part of. And so Ignimbrite is the business, Ignimbrite Minerals. And I'm not even in the management role of Ignimbrite anymore at this point. I'm just one of the owners in the company. And uh, it's really great. We have an incredible team that's kind of taken it from here. Uh, I feel like I've pitched the first eight innings and uh, now brought in my closer. So I've got the closers <laughs> in. Uh, but it's been an you know, exciting time to be in the Missoula community and be a part of that for the last 10 years. And um, that's been only one aspect of my life, you know. And so one of the bigger things that's like dear to me is farming. And I grew up on a farm and we had strawberries and apples and big uh, family gardens to tend to and tillers to run and things that were just really a blast to me. But it always was intriguing to work with farms. And then the, the product, the mineral product was a great uh, mineral that uh, the, the farmers needed and they basically needed to supplement their nutrients that they're adding to the soil and it was a great fit to kind of get back into farming and to work with farmers again and now I found myself back in and actually farming myself so it's uh, it's been a lot of work it's a reminder just how much work farming takes and a great appreciation of our food you know after going through this whole COVID thing you have a um, a big time reality check about where our food comes from, how it gets produced, and what we're doing from there. So it's led to a, a variety of things that I'm moving forward with in my life, and hopefully it would be great for the state of Montana. And, um, well, let's see, you also grow, or have grown in the past, hemp, right? Yes. And that's another thing that uh, I actually, that's one of the ways I met you in the first place, was via Frances de Forest and her work with hemp. Right. Um, because she sourced some of her materials from you. Right. Um, and that's another thing that we can talk about. Let's see, um, also via Montana Grow, you talked to me about a, a mine near Bonner where yeah. you source, um, what is, is it, the silicone? Or what is it? Well, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a type of silicon. It it's is a too. natural source of silicon. It's called ignimbrite. Ignimbrite. So ignimbrite is. is the mineral that's out east of Missoula. And out past Bearmouth, and so that's a that company is off and rolling, and uh, you can see that at Ignimbrite, I G N I M B R I T E, or just contact any of those folks that are based in the Missoula area, so they can set you up with it. And we ship all over the United States and pretty much all over the world. We've shipped to uh, South Korea; those were about the furthest away we've we've sent product to. So, uh, and also uh, Wild Horse Hot Springs, right? Right. Yeah, uh, uh, Denny. And I have uh, tried to bring this back into Bearer, and uh, uh, our friend Rick has uh, joined us now. We've got a lot of things going on as far as cleaning that place up and making it uh, come together as a resort, really. It's um, an incredible hot water source. You know, it was discovered back in about 1911, and uh, it's under artesian power. So 
artesian hot water isn't uncommon to this valley at all, but the volume is pretty amazing, over mm. 1,200 gallons per minute that comes gushing out of our well at 128 degrees. And so it's an incredible source. Uh, the, the government's tried to search for even hotter sources around here that they haven't been able to find. But uh, so we feel really blessed that we have one of these ancient healing water sources that is uh, available there at the Wild Horse Hot Springs. And our, our mascot is Ace, the big white horse, so you'll usually see him if you come and visit. But it's out in the middle of the prairie. It's a little bit different because it's in, being in the middle of the prairie, you get really wide open views. And uh, it's also sub, subject to higher winds out there too, but we have some cabins there and some teepees, a little Indian village kind of coming together. And, uh, and a wonderful selection of pools, as you've experienced, you know. So. I think it's ancient, actually. Mm. It goes back, you know, the tribal nations that are around us have been coming to these springs for tens of thousands of years. And more than 12,000 at least, and maybe up to 14,000 years they've been around here. So they were here when these glacial lakes were still around. They've seen these glacial lakes exit our mountains. They've been around for that many years that um, it's all very, very special. The mountains here, and this this is the homeland for our Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. And this is um, it's really a special place when you start to realize the deep, long history. During times of plagues and other issues, people came here. So we had a, this whole question of what's essential? Are these hot springs essential? And clearly, for 12,000 years, they've been called upon as an essential source to heal. And so uh, we'd recommend people coming up when it's time for them to really get away and, uh, and do it in earnest, is that they will think of hot springs again because the community was basically shut down, like so many towns. And being shut down as what we've always thought for centuries is that we are an essential service. Mm. hot springs coming from the bot, you know, hundreds of feet down below that's been filtered through the earth and comes up with its own natural pressure from a, a higher water table up in the mountains, pushing on our water and then bringing it up hot, has been a part of healing for centuries. Do you guys use uh, geothermal at all to create energy for wild horse? Not at this time, you know, the, uh, there's a great potential for that. Uh, there's ways of running the turbines from the artesian water coming out. Hmm. Uh, there are ways of running radiant heat systems. And so we use, ah. we use the radiant heat at this point for the buildings and the concrete slabs. Oh, all the, so, the buildings? Yeah, for the buildings and not really for the cabins just yet, but okay. for other structures. We're able to tap into the hot water source and then just run that through the floors to keep the buildings warm. Oh, that sounds delightful. Yeah. Yes, and, uh, and ultimately we'll be able, there's so much of it that we have, uh, we'll be able to keep walkways and other things like that open too. I'm putting some turbines in that really strong flow of water coming out. Is that something that you said? Yeah, you I mean, if you know somebody that knows that technology, we're all ears mm -hmm. to find out. Uh, there's different types of hydro power systems, and uh, we've seen some that are in flow. We basically have to keep it in flow because if we let oxygen mix with the water, mm. then it starts to do stranger things. It starts to... Oh. That's when like moss starts to form or the algae start to form because they... Oh, it's more oxygen. Yeah, and so it's oxygenated and that oxygen then mixes with the water and it starts to do things that make it change and make it more problematic to run pumps that are just open air. And so inline systems seem to be the best. Um, but if we're looking for somebody that has that experience, if anybody out there can help us, we'd love to tap into it. Uh, I'd love to have that experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, power is important because as we grow as a resort, uh, we want to be right-sized as a resort, and we want to be able to be a really positive contributor to our, really, the two counties, Sanders and Lake County. But, uh, you know, costs are everything to a business, and staying viable is about you know, utilizing that resource to, to our best good if we can run the lights and uh, you know, take care of things. And this is important when it comes to growing food. And uh, food production is kind of our next step. It's an inevitable step for us. We'll have to grow for our resort guests, but we're also having the hot water is free heat. And so free heat for greenhouses is really important. Having free power from that or having running a power system off of that, not necessarily free because there's a capital cost to buy these systems, 
but to tap it in there so that we can run lights because to grow greens and other crops, we need to supplement that with light through our winter months, which is too short of days. Mm -hmm. So if we can do that, then we can have year-round vegetable production for our guests and for food banks in the area or for other you know, visitors that come and want to get fresh greens and fresh, fresh produce as they go, and maybe even fresh hemp in the future. I'm not growing hemp right now because I couldn't get anybody to give me a contract. I've been looking for a contract, and so I didn't grow. I chose not to grow hemp. It was an interesting thing. Here's this incredible crop, but not growing it was actually very prudent because we've, a lot of us as producers in Montana have lost money over the last couple of years of trying to get into this industry and realizing that the contracts that we did have really didn't hold very well. And so just about everybody was really affected over the last two years that has hemp. And so I've chosen not to even plant it this year just to, to you know, as uh, there's other things that I can plant that will make money, mm. and uh, and I want to avoid having it. And it, besides, I have products still available from 2019's crop, so oh. it's an important thing that I can go ahead and sell that to anyone that um, is still interested in it. There's still lots of product around, not only that I have, but a lot of other producers from last year, and I think even producers from 2018 have a lot of product. So we. Um, the problem, the holdup has been manufacturing in the industry. Mm. And so for hemp processing, it's been a critical step. We've seen some small efforts to go forward, some uh, processors that are processing oils and others that are processing the seeds and others that are you now starting to process a little bit of the stock material. It's the stocks that are really the most interesting thing to me. It's the biggest part of the plant and uh, not necessarily the highest value because the flowers tend to be out there. But the, uh, the stock is important because of our textile industry in the United States. So it's been driving me to find a good solution that will utilize the hemp as a textile and blend it and try to re basically resurge the wool industry hmm. that is in the United States that's been on a downward spiral for decades. Uh, wool has been almost irrelevant with all the other synthetics that are made primarily in China, and they've just eroded the market for wool. Weren't you saying something about hemp as insulation or mixed with wool as insulation before? I think any of those combinations or blends are really important for our future and they're going to be even more important for our sustainability really that we don't have to look for synthetics from overseas and we don't have to make things out of uh, chemicals. We can actually just use natural fibers and, uh, and have them function and work really, really well together. You know, we've had 80 years without any hemp fiber in our mixes. So there's still a lot of research that has to be done, but we know we can make wool insulation. We can blend the hemp fiber with that to build on the, the strength of that overall material and then build it out to whatever our rating is needed, you know, from architects, whatever the architect and the engineer need, it can be built. And the two are gonna help, hemp is gonna resurge the wool industry which is fantastic for the wool producers. Hundreds of farms, hundreds and hundreds of ranches that are affected by all this, just here in Montana. There's, oh, cool. You know, and west of the Mississippi, really, but it's in Montana, it affects a lot of the ranches on the Northern Plains, and, um, and a lot of the farms that have already produced hemp, uh, now they're looking for places to take their fiber, and so the two are gonna come together beautifully. Um, and, and then, moving on from the fiber, you've also taken the, the herd or the shiv, it's called that inner woody product, right. and you've made that. You've, Francis bought it from you to make hempcrete, for example. Right. It's an interesting product, you know, just in the process of running it through a decortication system. We've seen now probably five or six different types of technology just come through Montana in decortication. So it's taking the stalks and firing them through and uh, ending up with this herd. That herd product is lighter. Um, so this is called nine core. So there's nine different sizes of that herd product. And so it can go and be crushed and screened down to different sizes. Uh, typically in the higher end sides of it, you get all the way down to where you're vacuuming the dust out of that. And you just get the pure herd down to a very, very specific size. Wow. And that is your ideal source that you're supplying on a regular basis to um, the contracting companies that would be using it that an architect is spec'd and the engineer knows what it's going to perform and how it's going to perform for the building. 
Was there very much demand for that product, the hemp shift, in the in this area? You know, I think there's a lot of demand because of the whole green revolution. But from a contractor standpoint, it was uh, a, a bit of a joke, really. It was kind of, well, there's no one really supplying it, so it's really going to be... It, it was only the very ultra high-end type customer that wanted green that had to get it from Europe. Mm. So this is the only place you could get that for years. Now as we re-emerge and we kind of come in, uh, there's different companies providing different qualities of herd. Mm. And now as you get into the finer quality of it, we're getting into even higher quality products. If you go into a composite that's being used for a car door to make the car door lighter, well, the, if the fiber of a body of a car is lighter, it's going to get better fuel efficiency and fuel efficiency is everything mm. and lightweightness and repairability and uh, durability in terms of its ability to rebound back. Hemp gives these products a lot of these qualities, uh, both in composites and also in, in type of, like a type of a fiber type of board. So we've seen big companies go in and have, you know step in with both feet, basically jump into this industry with both feet and go flat on their face. We've seen other industries starting to come into it and really I think uh, taking more care is really important here. Unfortunately, it costs more money and time, but doing it right is going to be really important for the hemp's future, mm -hmm. uh, just so that it doesn't get slowed up because it's got a lot of momentum and a lot of abilities to be used in multiple industries. So didn't you say there are a lot of grocer growers sitting on product, that they have a lot of product? So mm -hmm. why is it not, why are they not able to sell it or get rid of it to utilize for those sorts of things? There's just not enough industry or? Yeah, there's another second tier of all those. You can think of it about wheat. If everybody grew wheat and then there were no mills, like we have mills, very, very large mills that have been around for uh, that are, you know, 100 plus years old in Montana. And without those mills, we don't have an industry. It's a very tough thing to actually mm -hmm. take the product if we, don't have, if we don't have the cleaning facilities, we don't have all these other things. So there were not drying facilities even to handle the hemp crop. Those had to come into bear. Uh, storage facilities now, uh, places that can handle it and, and separate the pieces. And then to be able to deliver it consistently, just on the small scale here for Montana, for a contractor to know that I've got consistently you know, available herd at this exact size, it's not something that an architect or any engineer could really count on until just in the last couple of years where we started to see American sources for that. So as that comes on, there'll be more and more that will start to break that down. We have them all across. There's farms out there right now that are decorticating their hemp from 2018. And the good news is that we have across the border, Canada has been doing this for quite a few years. And uh, so they've got another couple of decades on us in a number of aspects of this industry. But they're still decorticating hemp that's five and seven and eight years old. So it doesn't break down very easily. Hmm. It's, uh, you can see a bale from one year and on to the next year, and you don't see a whole lot of breakdown. So the hemp fibers, the best part about them, of course, is that they're the strongest fiber we've ever grown. And the worst part about them is that they're the strongest fiber that's ever grown. So they get wrapped around machinery and they get into all kinds of things. And so there's, there's difficulties with it. Uh, but we don't really have the best varieties that we haven't grown here in this region for fiber, for just fiber type crops. Uh, without the technology and the added, the added benefit down the road here of additional manufacturing, why grow it? And so it's been pretty obvious for the farmers out there is that we need this second tier of the industry to develop more before we really will start to find the need to contract really for this hemp because there's so much on the ground, there's so much available now for producers. The best thing you could ever do is just come up with an idea to use a part of the hemp plant and you would be one of the very first in America to be doing that. And, uh, and I think sometimes that's the, a dangerous road to take because you may not have your market completely proven out but if you can find a good niche in this, there's literally thousands of products, 20,000 or some people say 50,000 products, probably more than that really when you think of all the combinations of products uh, where hemp can be utilized. So we wanna see that have a bright future in Montana. We should really be the top producer in the country with all of our open farmland. There's not as much here in the Western Mountains, but the, uh, there's plenty of room for very good specialty crops of hemp here in the Western Mountains. But out in the East, we've got tons of space and it's a great rotational crop. We're seeing that as uh, farmers, it is, uh, it's an ideal rotational crop to come in. And in some cases, maybe the fiber, these taller fiber varieties might be actually better to control weeds. And we're looking for conventional farmers, which is 
the vast majority. We have 27,000 plus farmers in Montana mm. and there's 300 that are organic. 300, so about a percent, okay? And about 5% of what they produce out into the marketplace is from organic. So we have about 5% of the market of food and about 1% coming out of the farm gate. So there's a big conversion there of like, wow, a lot of conventional farmers need better techniques to make more money. And they can make more money by growing organic food. It's better for everybody. And this whole COVID thing is just driving it home that putting Roundup all over your field and killing everything in your field is a terrible practice. Uh, there's much better ways of controlling weeds and controlling issues for the farm and the organic farmer can make more money and I anticipate that that's going to stay the course for quite a long time now is that there always will be a premium. Uh, we didn't see the big premium in hemp products yet. It hasn't been defined enough to kind of evolve to where people even under, understand where hemp's organic side could really make a big difference and we're calling on hemp to actually make our medicines you know so hemp industries were considered essential during this time I thought cannabis was an interesting choice that it was considered an essential industry mm -hmm. during the last COVID outbreak. And that's a big step forward for that whole industry. Uh, and it should, uh, but it should speak volumes about really why we need to step forward in the next level of processing, not only in terms of just processing flour for extraction industries, but also the things that we can do with the fibers and with the herd and with the roots for that matter. So it's an incredible plant. There's a, it's got a great future for Montana, I'm sure. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see it evolve you know, over the next decade. And you had said that you have a, you're working on a carding facility in northeastern Montana? Yeah, that's a big project. I gotta just kind of keep that close to the chest, but it's really important. It's a very, um, very significant project that actually helps to blend and bring the wool industry out of its kind of downward spiral. And it's, uh, I think it's important for the entire nation, of course, for the Northern Plains. I've got a lot of, I can feel the pressure of the ranches out there that have all the sheep all across Montana. of a whole bunch of varieties, too. I mean, there's a, it's, uh, we need a place that we can process that, and that is absolutely my goal. Uh, I originally, many years ago, I thought of, where can I actually do a place where I can put my fertilizer product into these mats that I see out on the highways. You know, you see these mats of, looks like they roll out erosion control mats, mm -hmm. these blankets. So these erosion control blankets, where do they do that and where can I put my fertilizer into those that's a natural product? Well, one thing led to another and this is the, you know, kind of the culmination of many things in my life, but bringing that product into a, another type of use for wool and hemp fiber would be to stabilize soils after construction projects and after doing highway work and yeah yeah yes. the major fires and the bureau of land management and forest service use them and uh, the department of highways use hundreds of miles of this type of fabric and so and it's better too because it should be natural come on you know they use polypropylene from china oh. so we don't need more plastics in where we're trying to establish soils we want plastics out of those areas and especially as we get more sensitive zones you know around where people live and work and we want to just have them be biodegradable from natural fibers makes sense yeah you know, so sometimes it's pretty obvious like that. And then if I can help it grow, whatever we're trying to grow, as fast as possible. Um, and it's interesting because different thicknesses and different varieties of, of fibers are used in different ways. Some to just establish vegetation. Other times they're used to block vegetation. So you have uh. like almond growers that use wool blankets to block the weeds around the base of the trees. A natural, organic technique to block weeds. And slugs don't go into it either. They're like people look for slug things. So there's another use for fibers uh, to be oh. used from wool. And anyway, those industries really need more help to come about. We'd hate to lose them in Montana. And so my goal is to really help uh, build a robust fiber industry for Montana. Um, and then, that sounds amazing, by the way. Would you speak to the uses of hempcrete or uh, whether or not you think it's a viable building material? Because you've done some work with it, have you not? Yeah, we've done uh, a variety of work where I supported research here uh, now for 
Gosh, um, dating myself about 15 years ago, we started with uh, the World Center for Concrete Technology in Alpena, Michigan, using mine tailings, using a variety of different waste streams that we found across Montana. Using mine tailings? Mine tailings that we would use as a replacement, as an aggregate replacement in concrete products. You have to go mine the rock anyway, and now you're going to go, we already mined for minerals, so let's just take what was waste and let's treat it as not waste. How about if it, the mining industry, and really what it comes down to is that the, the environmental movement has set up home shop here in Montana. And for good reason too. I mean, we have a bad history of industry and the industries and mining companies kind of leading our nation by bringing out these minerals, especially in Butte, Montana in that area. But also we've seen how those companies can take control of our state government. So we've had the best and the worst of it, but we've had the richest hill on earth in Montana here in Butte, uh, still producing copper and silver and molybdenum and very important minerals that our world needs. We need, we want to fly in our jets or we want to drive in our cars and we use these minerals, you know, readily. Uh, we want to talk on our cell phones or record on our recording devices. We need these things. So although sometimes we're against mining, I've always been a proponent of we need to do smart mining. And green mining is the word that I have tried to teach the industry. And so, as my dad said many years ago, he said, you'll have overnight success in 13 years. So it's still going to come. There's still room for this to grow because the industry needs green mining. Mining needs to be done in a green way. It's been proven that it can be done. And so it kind of gets back to agricultural products too. You, and, and ag, is a, as a general rule, have been really good. The timber industry, for instance, has been really good at using all the parts of the tree that they possibly can, fiber boards and all kinds of other things, mm. uh, pellets and you, know, you name it, right down to the last little bit. And the hemp industry has to get caught up with the same thing. What we proved or what we were able to show is that we could replace many of the existing aggregates that are used to make like a cinder block, you know, a building block, the most common thing. But the, the machine that uses the building block, those machines will make probably four or 5,000 different shapes of blocks. Mm. So different shapes of blocks have different uses. Some we use for erosion control or slope stabilization. Others we use for decorative blocks and other things we just have basic inside building blocks. Some are used below grade, some we make into pipes, like precast pipes. So I thought if we could disrupt that industry by using something we already have in a mining industry, what do they do when they take that out? They cut down, in our case here in Montana, they would have to cut down hundreds of acres of trees, create big storage cells, mm -hmm. and then pump this waste into these storage cells. So it creates more problems because they have to deal with a tailing pond or what's a, a, a tailing impoundment. And so those things dry out and then they blow loose and if people live in the neighborhood, they get clobbered with it. So it's, it's very problematic. And the best thing to do is to basically use this stuff as it comes out of the ground. It's like the buffalo. The buffalo comes charging over the buffalo jump. You harvest every part of that animal. Hmm. And so this is the same thing. You don't take it off to like bury most of it after just taking the tongue out of the animal. And so we as white settlers had a bad, bad history of just kind of learning to take, 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 uh, even taking of the buffalo, taking of all these basic resources. And it's important to know that we, we still need these basic minerals, but how are we going to go about it and do it in a green way that makes mm -hmm. sense, that gives us the best chance for sustainability and also the safest environment to go do it. So there's different techniques of mining, uh, paste filling. Like when you take a rock out of a mountainside, if you're underground, you take the rock out, you can only put about 60% of it back in the hole because mm. you've now opened up the, all the surface area as you crush it down. But in most cases of all that rock we take out, we only use about 1%. Historically, we've had a little bit higher percent, but those higher percent places have already been found. Now we're down at about 1%. So the other 99%, there's nothing wrong with almost all of it that comes from the mining industry. It's just the placement of it and going and sticking it somewhere else. And so that's the important thing is disrupting that industry. If we want mining to come back to Montana, it has to be done in a way that's to the benefit of all Montanans. Mm. And that is really, that's the, the thing. We can't just have this big tailing impoundment ever created before. And a lot of other industries in uh, 
agriculture, they do the same sort of thing. They will take their waste product and take it to a big special landfill and landfill it in their own way. Special lined ponds or things. So anytime we concentrate anything, whether it's wine skins or, or you know, grape skins or if it's uh, sawdust or anything we put in big piles and collect over hundreds of acres is always problematic. You could put cornflakes probably out and it would disrupt the environment too if you covered it, you know, 90 feet deep. <laughs> so we just, the whole idea is we use it like a buffalo. Um, that kind of tribal heritage is where I tried to draw from some of that energy. Uh, some people have called it uh, biomimicry that, you know, the, the natural world has already figured out all the problems that we have and we just have to draw from them, you know, and so we draw things from the design of how wing tips work now. We've incorporated that into aircraft. We, do, we see it in all kinds of different things. And so I think there's biomimicry that is, can be brought into the use of these various products like hemp and wool and uh, other products that we have in Montana that we can grow naturally. And it's good for our farmers and our ranchers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and just would love to see an explosion of organic farming for Montana. The other 27,000 farmers, please, please consider, let's switch to organic. Overnight would be just fine by me. It's really important. And uh, organic farming is the future. As my good friend Bob Quinn says, we started as organic farmers and we're going to finish as organic farmers. So you think about that, it's pretty powerful. As the chemical farming is a fairly new phenomenon in American history. And world history and it's time that we kind of get off of it and get back to the natural forms there are really good products that are made in boxes and in bags that are organic rated and they're important to use those and start to move towards those so that producers can really get the most out of their land they're trying to find the best living for their family and uh, i think organic is the way to go so I would put that in there, a little plug, join the Montana Organic Association. That's like the, I'm on their board, but I would say, hey, you know, that's the first step. Join the organization, you start to rub elbows with the right people that are in your nook of whether you're in the organic uh, uh, grape production for the wine industry that's exploding across Montana, or you're, you know, growing for, you know, other commodities. Um, it's the, a good organization to really be around and, and uh, share that energy. We only meet once a year in December. Hopefully we'll get a chance to meet this year. It's not real clear whether we're you know, going to have our big meetings, but, but either way, it's a good group to organize and, uh, and uh, kind of learn from. And they've been a great inspiration for me as I look towards farming, both with the hemp industry and trying to help the hemp industry grow and come forward. Now it's about really finding the second tier solutions for that industry, which I think will affect a lot of farms across Montana. What about, you know, just hemp and the construction industry in general? I mean, when you said there's no second tier, there's nobody making that hemp flooring, there's nobody, so that's the biggest problem to it being used as a more commonly found construction material. Right, there's been a there's few. There's a supply, but just not that second tier. And we're starting to see the U.S. manufacturing starting to happen now. So there's good good examples. There's been some tough ones that have uh, gone through a big learning curve, but I, I'm confident that Montana should be taking that next leadership role there. I think as entrepreneurs, people will uh, find that opportunity. They'll see that it's just not, it's really not best to grow this in Kentucky and then ship it all the way across the country when we can do the exact same kind of fiberboard or whatever we are and just converting some of our, uh, some of the wood product industries, some of the technologies we already know from that, we can we can do it, hopefully as cheaply as possible, because again, we have to protect our costs that we can't just create hemp products for an ultra high-end market, and it will be very problematic to be profitable, and you have to have some level of profitability and still pay the farmer. Well, the farmer should win in all of this. If there's a new commodity like we have, how, when was the last commodity? It's been a long time since we've had a new commodity come into the United States, and the farmer gets screwed for the lack of a better word. They really get have gotten the short end of the stick on most commodities. Uh, we don't want to have hemp do the same thing. So we always want to try to protect the farmer and their margins and so that they have a profitable rotational crop that they can count on. Um, and, and it's difficult to do that right now. I'm not saying it's a, a, a easy solution right at the moment, but that's what we're working for. I think it's we're really going to move to where it'll be a very sustainable 
predictable crop that people can add into that rotation that, that will be good and they'll know that there's a market for it. I asked David about um, growing hemp and uh, they were saying that next year, we're already past the solstice, so they were saying that to maximize what their yield on their seed, they would wait until next year, but also that hemp is a high feeder, so it requires a lot of, they have pigs, and they rotate the pigs, and then they plant stuff where the pigs have been rooting in the soil and, you know, pooping everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said that basically they need to have a field like that ready to go um, to, to grow a good crop of hemp. And so I wondered what, you know, how other operations that don't have livestock, you know, replace that nutrient that, that needs to be in the soil? You know, some will uh, make arrangements with, um, with stockyards if they're within a relative distance that it's not too expensive to truck that manure. So they're usually, the manure, the guys with the, the feedlots are usually happy to get rid of the manure. So they come and get it and then they blend it in and they shoot it out across their organic fields. Ah. That's about the only way that they can get that out there. Otherwise, um, there's other products like the Montana Grow that I was talking about. You know, that's used in a, it's in a granule form. They can just put it in at the time that they seed. So they're not going to make a special trip to the field. Mm. Uh, the thing with manure is typically it's a, it's a special trip to the field. So it, it requires more... Manure is a special trip. To yeah, it requires them to spread it in a separate trip, and so there's the issues with compaction on the soil, driving it out there on the onto the fields. Mm -hmm. But uh, otherwise, that's the natural. That's just considered the most natural organic technique that there is to you know, re replace some of these nutrients mm -hmm. that otherwise are being kind of mined out. Farmers are miners when it comes right down to it. The soil only has so much capacity, and so you have to have a replacement plan or a, a rotational crop that can you either plow it down so you don't actually harvest it that year. And so that's a common technique is to grow a, a green manure crop mm. and, uh, and then plow that down and use that for the benefit of the next year's crop. If you're storing that nitrogen naturally and yeah, helps to build the soil texture. Would you describe a, your, what kind of farming you're doing or a day in the life of uh, John Porterfield farming? Well, uh, I've, I'm so uh, driven, I guess, really is the word, to, um, to find the right things to do as far as farming. And really, this is uh, for the limited space that I have, that I grow in, we're looking for the best relationships with a customer. And so we've, we've now focused in on berries, you know, as, because I've got about nine acres at my in front of me that I'm, I'm dealing with. So I'm not on one of these big, big farms in the east. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and berries seem to be about the safest bet to move into as a perennial crop. They'll take a lot of work and a lot of efforts, but I'm excited about that. Elderberry is one of them, and, and there'll be a few others too. So we've, we've got a long way to go. There's a big, uh, the winery industry in Montana is going to explode, and it's going to continue to explode. And so as we watch that, the, as We'll need berry production to happen. Uh, there'll be more and more uh, grape growers, and consequently, there'll be more wineries popping up, just like we've seen breweries in all of our communities. We'll see wineries and more and more and more wineries. And I think that's important as another viable crop, not, also, not always for uh, alcoholic-type purposes, but just basically being able to bottle up a lot of our juices that we're making here, and so we have wonderful juices that could be made here that, um, you know, why bring in orange juice when you can get local <laughs> produced juices, you know. So that would be really exciting, I think, to work more with the, the growers in, uh, in berries and other crops, uh, orchards that, uh, not necessarily for cherries. Cherries, there's pretty much a stronghold already, and so I'm interested mm -hmm. in other crops to grow. So if anybody has any ideas, I'm all ears, of course. Two, two uh, new ways to do that. In some cases, uh, it's been interesting because we've been watering on one farm. I'm pulling from Flathead Lake, so it's really icy cold water. Mm. And at Wild Horse Hot Springs, we're using overflow water, which is coming straight from our well at 128 degrees. So the irrigation lines, you can barely even touch. They're so hot. And so we have to dissipate that heat as we put it out into the field, but the Less plants... The berries are getting all that mineral-rich water. They take off so well, so we've been able to see, you know, different root development with the exact same plants using different water. Wow. Yeah. 
And so the ground will stay warmer longer, of course, into the fall. And so if they're in greenhouses, we know the production's going to be really, really strong. So I'd love to see greenhouses where you could come and do a soaking experience in the greenhouse oh. in the winter when the entire landscape is solid white. And you come into that place and you get to relieve your eyes of the bright white and just take in the soothing green all around you. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe take home a fresh head of lettuce after you're done. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you have any greenhouses out at Wild Horse yet? or? Well, not yet. No, I've been working with a company called Allegria Pharmacy, and it's been a really exciting thing. They're fully integrated for the first time I've ever seen in a, a greenhouse system. It uses a grow sock type technology that grows in a box up and above, and so you'll be able to build your soils in a tube it's above ground so it's easy to work with and they're on rolling trays so you can move trays in and out of the facility wow. but it's integrated into containers and Allegria Pharmacy built or it's a, spelled with an F F-A-R-M-C-Y M-A-C-Y um, uh, is the uh, the design really the ultimate design of a high production model of greenhouse hmm. and it would allow us to utilize the hot water that we have for radiant heat to run power for the lights that we would need and then have that mineral rich water going to the plants would be really fantastic. So just should really, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The idea is to how big do we want to go? Do we want it to be a half an acre or a full acre or two acres? And so this is a great opportunity, I believe, because of the uniqueness of us being able to produce food at a much lower cost than anywhere else. Free heat, free power, those are big factors. So we should work with the tribe and work with our other communities. There are many underserved food banks in our area. We don't even have a food bank in Hot Springs right now. So we need to create a food bank. That's step one. And then outsource to more food banks in the area so that we're taking care of our most vulnerable citizens. And, um, and that's helpful because when we feed people or at least make sure that they can get food, then they can worry about the next steps, which might be getting out of homelessness or getting into the workforce. And so step one is make sure that people don't have a, an angry tummy, really. Mm -hmm. And so Missoula communities like this, are, you know, the food bank network, of course, is a target. I would love to see these Allegria pharmacies deployed at every one of our food banks across the whole state, mm -hmm. at each of our tribal colleges, at uh, each of our major resorts. That's the potential. So we just go into local food production. We can't expect that the Cisco trucks or these other supply trucks are going to magically show up all the time forever and save us and bring us food to our communities. We have to be able to grow it locally. And it's so much more nutrient dense. So it's so much better to get food that hasn't been in a can or been, you know, through thousands of miles of being transported to you when we can easily grow them here in Montana. We just have to have the right production model to do it. And that supplements all the things, the great things that we can grow outside here for the other, you know, six months or so. And if your brain is nourished, you can think better. And that's really important to Huge. have a population that can think clearly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so many times I think children just get pinched in the whole process because the parents are trying their best and they have limited resources and jobs get back, you know, just the job is gone suddenly. And just, you know, you've seen it all across the prairie. It's uh, and it happens in the mountains too here, but it's uh, it's something that we should be able to move closer to being able to take care of our basic needs of food water, shelter. Those are really, really basic needs. We have a bill of rights. I guess I'd love to see a bill of housing if I ever could just act on Congress. A bill of housing would really be a, a monumental shift for our nation. Mm -hmm. um, and hemp can be right at the forefront of that. This is the beautiful thing. It's a natural building material that could help solve home homelessness in the state. I mean, I think we really, through this whole process now, we've seen we can end homelessness. We went, we had to round up all the people that were homeless. We wanted to make sure that they got care. They weren't forgotten about during this time. Um, and I think we now knew that we could ramp up facilities as needed to deal with the influx of additional people. But now we've learned how to move away from that without abandoning these people. And uh, so if there's some good things that come from a big plague of, of whatever sort this has been and how it's going to evolve here, we're still only three or four, four months into it. So um, we'll see how that plays out. It may further change other industries. It may heighten the need for even more organic food, you know. It's, 
that important? Well, um, for the purposes of, of ZAP, the Zootown Affordable Housing Podcast, uh, I've gotten really interested in hemp as a building material, and I don't even know all of the ramifications for hemp yet. Um, I'm really interested in hempcrete for MAP, the Missoula Attainability Project, which is what I've been doing research for and collecting. Inter mm -hmm. My interviews now go between ZAP and <laughs> MAP. It's kind of cross-pollination. But um, what you're saying about uh, hemp is, yeah, there just needs to be that second tier. What, mm -hmm. uh, why isn't that a project of, of yours to make that, create that second tier? It sounds like a good investment. Well, it is, and the hemp and blending it with the wool is really a big part of that. Okay, okay, yeah. And then when you decorticate to get the fiber, these short bass fibers that you'd use to mix with the wool, then you end up with the herd. And the herd will be a good supply technique. And I really, I, I'm deeply involved in it. Uh, and so it just hasn't been the biggest priority. The, pri the biggest priority somehow has switched to the sheep and, uh, and to the other farmers that are sitting on all these bales of hemp from the last few years is that we've got the ability to do it and do it in Montana with the existing machinery we have. It's just a matter of turning the light switch back on. Ah. So it's a, the, the products can be made, the, you know, it's like, a, it's an opportunity that just needs to be done quickly and it's readily available. The rest of it, it's really just a matter of getting the right sized herd products and blending it in and, and having it really available in the quantities you need. It's mm. just big quantities that you really That's have to I have. That's what I wonder, yeah. And okay. you know, and you see most of the videos of hempcrete being built is lime, which is terrible to work with, but you're mixing lime by hand and all this stuff. We don't do that anymore. We use things called shotcrete, we have electric mixers, we mix it. We have to have the right kind of inputs to be able to do this on a bigger contractor type scale. Because without that, then it's just volunteers and how many volunteers do you want to get to, 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 to start that? You know, how do you get enough people to just kind of come out and hand pack the walls of a house? It's not usually how it's done. So I would prefer to see hemp be a replacement for the aggregate. The, hemp, mm. the herd going into aggregate replacement, what does that do? It makes the blocks lighter. Um, any concrete or brick product is lighter. If it's lighter, it gets transported further. So if you have a plant in Bozeman, Montana, and you want to ship to the Flathead, it may have been too cost prohibitive to ship this kind of distance or to ship it to Denver. But maybe now you can ship even further. You normally can't ship blocks on trains. So maybe this gives it that enough integrity that the bricks and blocks can actually go by rail even cheaper. So maybe your outreach is even further. So strength is a lot of that and only it only comes from predictability of additional work so the, the work at the world center for concrete technology they've done a lot of the same sort of technology and we used all kinds of different waste products we used my tailings i was telling you about we used waste slag from anaconda the really really heavy stuff the the bricks and blocks we made with it were incredibly heavy hmm. but that's useful for certain industries hmm. and um, in certain applications if you're using it below grade are you going to need to really hold things in place. Uh, there were other technologies of ceramics we used. And so ceramics with hemp is very possible because ceramics actually work in a multi-phase environment. They, they actually, ceramics will attach themselves to wood, whereas concrete doesn't. Hmm. Cementaceous products normally don't stick to cellulose-based product. And in the case of ceramics, they do. And so, hmm, you, there's, some really interesting things that might happen that are, have, we haven't really thought of that are kind of our brains are stuck on hempcrete. And I hate working with hempcrete when I have to hand mix it with lime. I know how it works and I know why it works and breathable walls and all that stuff and go on and on and on. It's great. Do it. I love it. I applaud everybody for doing it. But when we get into bigger applications, we have to do it in a controlled situation through controlled machinery. And I think big block plants like the Besser Company and Columbia and these others that make the technology that actually makes these building tools, they're going to be making the biggest advancements. And then mm -hmm. places like the World Center for Concrete Technology and probably, you know, in our case in Montana, it's probably like MSU's uh, engineering department. I would look to them for a lot of the answers. They should be able to tell us more about where we can incorporate hemp 
into our building materials. Hmm. Whether it's in concrete technologies in a, in a lime or cementaceous mixture, or whether it's under extrusion, or it's been compressed, or, or it's blended with some other polymer that maybe comes from another waste industry as some starch product. That, so you've got all these different abilities to use this. Your, uh, and it all does come from just growing that hemp plant, which was really good. So we do want that to be a good sustainable part of one of our big commodities. The, the state of Montana has taken the absolute lead in the nation on this front, and it's been difficult to see the industry kind of go through a lot of pinch points that have hurt Montana farmers. Mm. And uh, so we want to see this reemerge in the favor of the farmer. And uh, as my friend Doug Fine talks about, this is the one crop where the farmers will win. So we do want to make sure that they win. And it's important because then it can flow back through projects like this to end homelessness, to put in quality homes, homes that don't break down in 40 or 50 years. You know, are we building the slums? South Hills and Missoula, homes all over the place. I'm thinking, hmm, there's other places that are about 70 years across town over there that are kind of like now the slums of Missoula. Huh. Hmm. And they all need new work. They're like shot. They're like rotten wood and... And they're trying to reface the wood or peeling the wood off and having to redo work, poor masonry or poor wood choices. Uh, are we building the slums of 50 to 60 years from now? Or could we build in building techniques and building technologies that will last thousands of years? And I'm sure that the, the concrete technologies of tomorrow, and this is where green mining comes in because we're gonna need these resources. Those green mining resources are coming from our mines. And, um, whether it's an aggregate mine for rock or whether it's um, or we're mining it from our soil, from the farm, uh, where we need to take care of ourselves. And I think we have all those pieces and parts and tools to do it in a natural way that is good for the state of Montana and that we can all work to a really good, sustainable is an overused word, but it is really, I think, generations from now when they look back at us that we would make good decisions here coming out of the COVID that we made good decisions to go and become more organic, that we made big decisions and big investments in hemp processing mm. to utilize this so that we became more relevant, you know, for all of our farmers and ranchers, which is the majority of the state, really. And then the tourism industry out here in the western part of the state, how are we going to embrace it? How can we embrace the other parts of Montana and its culture and heritage and, and bring it out even more too? Mostly these are visitor-oriented sections of the state, but it's... Uh, there's a lot of resources and a lot of uh, a lot of brain power in the western parts of the mountain. We're starting to see technology, you know, groups within the state, Bozeman, Missoula, Whitefish area, Flathead, um, and technology's changing. So technology companies realize they can live in Whitefish, Montana, or they can live in some cool place in the mountains that, and it still is, and they'll have full connectivity to the rest of the world. These are big game-changing things that are changing our economy, mm. but it still hasn't changed at the core level of what we're talking about, which is a lot of times our most sensitive or our most fragile parts of our communities is the homeless groups, the, um, you know, the mothers with children, for crying out loud, that we have mothers with children that are homeless in Montana, and, uh, and it's cold around here, you know, for, like I say, we've got nine months of winter and three months of company. Those nine months of winter, there are nine months that we can get winter weather. We don't want to have anybody be homeless. So your projects are good that I think that it can solve some of these things. I mean, my interest in hempcrete was uh, many, many reasons. It's, uh, it can be a sustainably sourced material or at least locally sourced material. Absolutely. Um, the processing it, if, if it can be done... Um, by the same company creating the structure could also be really low cost. Um, the lime, I looked, and there is a company in Montana that uh, mines, create, makes lime, mm -hmm. um, and they made a lot of claims to sustainability. I don't know enough about the company yet to speak mm -hmm. for them in any way, but um, maybe you know something about it. We could talk about it later. There's a lot of natural sources. There are other waste streams that create a lime, too. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, so... Um, there it might be a low-cost source of lime as well. Right. Um, it is uh, insulation, inner wall, uh, outer wall. Um, mm -hmm. It requires less wood because of that, I think, to build because you're filling in rather than having the 
I don't know. I think if there's, I think there's. Yeah, it's like thermal water. mass heating. Basically, it just disrupts the flow of the hot. If it's hot on that one side, it disrupts the flow of that energy through that wall structure. And For breathability. Us. Some of the things about breathability, I'm not a hundred percent sure about, but. Uh, only because we tend to seal walls. We tend to seal them with paint on one side and siding on the other side. So it sometimes wrap the whole thing. So there's different building techniques. It'll be interesting to see really what the... I'm looking for engineers to tell me. I don't want to try to just force it on the market and say, hey, I've got the new building product. I do know that we do have a new additive for building products. That is critical. We can lighten the weight of concrete structures or concrete blocks how do we get the best, which part of the plant is the best to use? Is it the one eighth inch to one quarter inch size piece of herd? Or is it, you know, something else? Or is it maybe a combination of uh, using some of the best fiber, you know, mixing up and chopping in fiber. We use fiberglass now. I mean, we, you buy chopped fiberglass and stick it in bags. You ask your employees to slash the bag open, dump it in the mixer, and then, you know, try not to breathe in any of the dust. The wind blows it all around. We used fiberglass chunked up. We used uh, cut up carpets is another source that's common. Uh, I'm sure there's others that are out there, but they're problematic. And that's, yeah, hemp fiber might have be a really easy way to put chopped hemp fiber into products and give them added strength that, you know. Um, then also the lightweight, well, lighter weight aspect of the hempcrete, um, because I would like for the unit to be transportable, made in one location in a repeatable process, mm -hmm. and then transported to wherever it needs to go. Um, so, yeah, the lightweight aspect of it. A lot of people talk about carbon capture, um, and that... I mean, I don't know. I think wood captures carbon too. So if you're building your house out of wood, yeah, <laughs> it's going it to... <laughs> yeah. Unless it's treated wood. But, um, and for a small structure and something that, I mean, I want MAP and what is created to be a hands-on sort of thing, educational in purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and that said, maybe the hands-on hands -on aspect of it is what you were describing with not liking to handle lime. Right. I, it's, I think it's an important community building type of project. Yeah. Uh, as a demonstration wall or a demonstration little side building. But to really get after it, I mean, to get into the bigger scale that a contractor would be really interested in working in, architects will have to design with it. It mm. won't just be somebody's homemade design for a little square building, you know, that is really cute and fun. And I applaud anybody for adding a garage and hand packing it with their own hemp that they got and they grew in the back lot. You know, you could use grasses and other things too, but hemp would be another thing just... Is it worth getting the $800 in licenses just to grow your own hemp? I don't think so. You probably can go buy hemp products without a commodity license now. So you go buy all the hemp product you need to start your new industry or to start your new construction firm that's only going to build with it. But it's available to you. The raw material is coming out of our ears. So yes, please jump into it. Uh, it's ready to be provided to you at a pretty low cost. I mean, everything that even after it gets processed a little bit and broken from just the stalks, into the fiber and into the herd, uh, there's a little more of a cost factor, but it's still very, very cheap compared to any other way that a filler. Hmm. Well, um, John, I don't want to take up all of your time for the day, and I wondered if there's anything else you would like to add regarding, I don't know, gardening, hempcrete, uh, Montana grow, or anything we haven't touched upon yet. No, I just... I would love to see these Alegria pharmacies. I think those are really kind of the future for Montana to see these start to get implemented across the state. It's an immediate thing that we can build them over the course of the summer and be ready for food production going all the way through the fall and year round forever. Well, I would like for my project to also include sustainable food production because I, I want to create a sustainable unit and I think that living in a sustainable unit is not separable from also living as sustainably as possible, creating your own food. Mm -hmm. I think that people in general, like the learning curve will be really steep, but we need to learn some new skills, <laughs> um, how to live, how to create our own food, and um, a new system that's not so violent towards Mother Earth. <laughs> right, but maybe integrate some technology. You know, these, uh, with the pharmacy units, they have a solar panel system that comes up that's a part of the driving part of it. Um, it uses containers, gets containerized on the sides of it so the containers can open up and become a store on one side that could be producing 
the seedlings in the back container, you know, and have a controlled environment before they come out to the, the rest of the greenhouse. Uh, they can be modular so they can grow in size and, and they're really kind of ideal for urban applications where you're in a tight space and it's all been asphalt and you've already got a hardened surface. Then the trays and the tables, they roll around on that hard surface very easily. Mm. Everything's up off the ground anyway, about three feet. So mm. it's very easy to work on. And uh, so an old concrete pad of an old, you know, timber mill or whatever you've got, frankly, if it's got a hard, smooth surface, it's perfect. And then we just attach the facility right to it, bring the containers in and stick it right on top of it. And how big do you want to go is the only question. All right, so Alegria Pharmacy. We all have to check out Alegria Pharmacy. It's fascinating. Okay. I feel it's the first time I've ever seen it integrated. The good news is it, they, you know, in the sock growing systems, they're really good soil, and it's all 100% organic soil blends, and it uses the Montana Grow. This is what brought us together. Ah. They started using this in Southern California, and you know, and the, the need was off the chart down there. If you could imagine in a giant city like Los Angeles, Orange County, Oh my gosh, they went from 225,000 people a month that they would serve to over 500,000 people a month. It would take them 55,000 volunteers. The volunteer force then was under COVID alert and their volunteer force was cut in less than half. So you have less than half the number of volunteers and twice the need. The urgency was stick in Alegria pharmacies right now all over the place and they did that. Uh, and Bank of America, God bless them, put the money behind the project instead of forcing somebody to come up with some rigmarole of how they're going to finance the darn thing. I've asked Wells Fargo, I'll ask Stockman, if you're listening, guys, step up. Let's put some of these into the Missoula market. Let's put them into each of our major centers where we have the larger food banks. We're going to turn the food, bank, food banks into farm banks. That's the biggest point that I could ever drive home. It's time to do that all across Montana. It gives all of our communities Food security, food sovereignty. And quality. And quality, nutritional <laughs> quality. You'd be eating food that's just hours old. It's huge. And after just a day or two, it's like 70 some percent can travel out of food. I've so you that. just, that freshness of salads and freshness of foods that we can have right here year round in Montana. Mm, I can't wait. Whether you're visiting at Wild Horse Hot Springs, you know, and you're so that day can't happen soon enough that I could put it at our resort and at many of the other resorts. That's kind of on a personal level because I love tourism so much. But it's for all the big food banks out there, the food banks rarely have fresh greens and they rarely have the ability to grow food that would be what their community would want. It allows the flexibility to grow different types of foods for different regions too, mm -hmm. whatever their local preference is. Well, I love it. I'm going to go look it up. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thank you, John. You were just listening to an interview with John Porterfield. If you enjoy Zap and find yourself more informed than before, please share. It is available free on all major platforms where podcasts are found. If you or anyone you know would like to contribute an interview, if you want more information about each episode, or to find out how to support this podcast, visit the Zap page at anchor.fm and feel free to send me a message. Special thanks to Missoula Community Radio for your ongoing mentorship and open learning platform. Thank you for joining the Zoo Town Affordable Housing Podcast Affordable is stable Afford means that you're able to make your wages last Through debt, rent, or expenses While even retaining some senses Stability with the ability to do things differently Start making choices that improve the collective and incentivize creation and from all collective.